I'm Billy. I'm Drew. Coming to you from our, an absolutely freezing night here in Sydney. That's right. Coldest day in 25 years. Is it really? It is. is, it for, is. for this time of year or just I generally? I think just generally. I think this is oh. a yeah an absolute record setter. Because it's, it's that combination of extreme cold, rain, and just kind of early early evening. So yes, complete yes. Darkness the whole day was rather crepuscular. Exactly. It's very European. Dankness. Um, which <laughs> Slate grey skies and exactly. driving rain. It felt like the sun never got out. Which actually is a nice segue into the aesthetic of our first series. Um, oh, are we going on a bull hunt, Billy? We are exactly. <laughs> it's um, it's. No, I feel like this is I our. Do you love a good bull hunt? I feel like. <laughs> I feel like this is our second great American nickname store, a nickname film. So it's an adaptation of Stephen King's 2006 novel, Lisey's Story, Lizzie's Story, <laughs> Lizzie's Story. Lizzie's Story. So L I S E Y. So Lisey, as in an abbreviation for Lisa. Is it? Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. It's funny. I remember this this Stephen King novel um, being really big when I was working. I was working at a bookstore in the mid 2000s, so I remember this coming out really acutely. I never read it, um, but it's it's the, it's the latest Stephen King adaptation, and it it kind of confirms my sense in some ways that the strongest or at least the most ambitious Stephen King adaptation, say in the last five seven years, have tended to move away from horror or blend horror with other genres. So a series like Mr. Mercedes, which blends horror with the police procedural. Have you seen that yet? I have not. Oh, it's excellent. So I think that's the best Stephen King adaptation on one in the last couple of years. Or, or a film like Gerald's Game mm. that blends horror with a kind of more psychological chamber drama. Did so, you see The Outsider? Yes. So I only watched the first couple of episodes of that. Mm. But again, the police procedural. Yeah, it's like Fincherian police procedural Ex- exactly. combined with yeah Stephen King type horror exactly so mm. this is kind of in that vein and it's it's there are elements of horror but it's it, there are also elements of kind of psychodrama romance and mm. also melodrama mm. so so the it, it's it's the pilot is told in quite an impressionistic way um but at heart it's about a character lisi landon played by julianne moore who is grieving and dealing with the death of her husband scott landon played by clive owen as the series opens, Scott's been dead, I think, a year. He's a famous writer who was shot while he was, I think it's called Turning the Sod, while he was digging out the first um, clump of earth at the foundation ceremony mm. for a new library. Those sod extremists, they those, can really go to... Ex- those sod, know, exactly. The lengths they go to. <laughs> those sod extremists, exactly. Um, and so, so that's one element of it, her dealing with the grief. There's also her relationship with her two sisters, who are played by Jennifer Jason Lee and Joan Allen. And on top of that, there's a mystery slash horror element around what well, we firstly the reasons for her husband's assassination are not clear here. But there's also a mystery around his body of work generally, and especially his unpublished manuscripts. Mm. His, his, his unpublished, his, the archive of his writing. She's, she's approached early on by someone who seems like a professor or an archivist or a librarian who leans pretty heavily on her to give up the rest of her husband's writing. Mm. And it's pretty, pretty, um, pretty harsh to her about how yeah. insignificant he sees her as having well, been I'd say probably even more significant than leaning on her he hires, hires an, exactly. an assassin exactly. to go after her exactly so. and then he, he hires an assassin in the towards the end of the series Dane DeHaan exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of it's interesting I mean I I really wanted to like this and there were things I liked about it I mean one one thing I would say about it it's like 
the series has two red or the pilot has two registers um sombient or histrionic <laughs> so the characters are either there's either no dialogue or the characters are in a kind of trance-like state or they're screaming mm. so it's it's very extreme the register either way which at times made it combined with a fairly impressionistic narrative at times made it difficult for me to get into it but i still thought this was a really interesting riff Mm. And, and a kind of a late riff, a late work riff on a lot of the things that have animated Stephen King throughout his career. So we, we'll get on to that. But what, what did you think? What were your kind of impressions? Yeah, I think this is this is certainly, for all its faults, it's nonetheless an interesting mm. sub. It's an interesting, I suppose, source text. I were you familiar with Lizzie's story? Before? Like I said, only in so far as it was when I was working at the bookshop, it was probably the biggest Stephen King release at that time. Okay. So I remember seeing it around a lot, selling it to a lot of people. Right, because my Stephen King phase was in the mid nineties, and I'm pretty au fait with most of his classic yep. horror works, and have even read some of the more contemporary mm. pieces. Cell, for example, mm. the zombie movie had no. No, no brand recognition for this this no. particular piece of intellectual property. And it's interesting. It does make you realise just... I mean, firstly, it, in his writing as well as in his adaptations, I think he's moved away from straight horror mm. in the last 20 years. But it also yeah. makes you realise just how prolific he is. I mean, mm. this is an experience I've had quite a few times of just hearing about Stephen King novels I just didn't even know existed. Yeah. Or Stephen King short stories or Stephen yeah. King adaptations. So the, the depth of his work is quite remarkable. I think it'd be fair to say his his recent work, his work in the last 20 years has not been his strongest. No. Although he does claim this is his favourite book and oh, right. claims it's one of his most autobiographical works. Okay, interesting. And also claims that you know, he's trying to meld in this kind of romance slash supernatural mm. slash horror mm. and create this kind of genre hybrid mm. that was also inspired by certain events in, in his own mm. life. And in particular, the incident was him, him returning from the hospital after spending several weeks there and seeing mm. his wife uh, rearranging his personal effects and in particular his office mm. in some ways kind of creating a kind of proto-archive. So he, he called it a kind of premonition of his demise and the way he'd be treated by posterity. And that, that, that is such an interesting... I didn't know that. That's such an interesting perspective because in, in terms of, you know, the things that animate his work, one of the things, you know, that, that props up time and again in his writing is the figure of the writer. Absolutely, like he, he loves yeah. He loves stories about writers. And he's often said that before this, Pet Cemetery was his most autobiographical work, which is also about a writer. What's so interesting here is that you have that same agonised writer trope, mm. but the writer is dead. Mm. And it's about the aftermath of a writer's legacy. So instead of the horror working its way into a writer's process or working its way into a writer's, you know, daily daily kind of writing routines as occurs say in misery or in the shining the horror comes from the legacy from the archive mm. Mm. and from the possibility of something horrific being hidden or concealed in the archive so that that mm. anecdote just makes perfect sense of that that of stephen king returning to his house seeing his wife archiving around him but also getting a glimpse of how his work would have been archived at that moment if he had been killed in yeah. the car crash yeah I mean, it's interesting like i felt yeah, I felt there was a broader sense here, a broader anxiety too about literature and about the role of literature. I mean, the Clive Owen character, when he's shot, he's commemorating a new library. Mm. He describes books as, you know, a force of light against a darkening world. And then he's assassinated at that very moment. Like, 
it kind of felt a bit like Stephen King coming to terms with his legacy, not just after he dies, but with the idea of his legacy in a world where literature is no longer dominant or in a post-literature world. Like there's mm. something apocalyptic about the style. It's like a world after books or mm. a world without books mm. or something. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think also he's interrogating that relationship between the author's biography and their work yes. in some ways. And I think over the last 20 years, we've been seeing an increasing focus on, I suppose, analysing in minute detail all of the problematic things that authors might have done or mm. said mm. or encoded in their work in some ways and that relationship between whether we can read a work an author's work without i suppose exploring or investigating or interrogating their autobiography mm. is something that's in some ways thematized here in some ways so mm. there's almost like a quest to see whether the author figure here has done anything problematic whether he's been authentic or whether he's instead drawn on other sort of secondary sources in some ways. Uh, There's some sort of, I guess, suggestion that he might have he might have actually been inspired by possible you know, messianic visions that he had in some ways. Mm. But to a, to a certain extent as well, that there might be some sort of dark secret that's lurking behind yes. his kind so, of biography about... in some ways that, me- that mm. renders his work problematic and possibly open to cancellation. Oh, and, and that he's done something that his inspiration might have a kind of unholy or unwholesome kind of origin and that's interesting because on twitter stephen king i mean the best stephen king is very active on twitter and he's often weighed into this idea of you know how the extent to which you separate the art from the artist and i think probably the best way to describe his position is ambivalence Mm. so he will often tweet about the importance of completely separating art but then he'll be quite critical of the way certain artists have behaved so i think there's there actually is a profound ambivalence and uncertainty in his online persona about that relationship between art and artist, which you see mm. kind of transplanted here mm. into this piece. I was going to say, in terms of it being late work and, you know, taking these concerns King has and, you know, looking at them like 30 years later after the classic works were written or 20 years after some of the classic works, I feel like this is a very different version of Maine from the yes. version because it's set in Maine, which is King's perennial you know, backdrop, and it's autumn in Maine, so it's yes. such a Stephen King space. But this is not a lush atmosphere. Well, it's atmospheric in a way, but it's not that lush, inviting small town texture no. of his early films, no. film and television adaptations at all. I mean, you look at something like Salem's Lot, which is about an equally dark, you know, subject matter, is positively cosy yeah. by comparison to this. You get a sense that Maine, in some ways, is kind of the the image or the mediatized image mm. of Maine has kind of superseded the actual Maine in some ways. So we, we, the novel or this series is kind of shot in it, almost a kind of series of picturesque sound stages yes. in some ways. So things that, that stand for the kind of, the kind of literary mm. Maine in some ways. So college campuses, mm. um, I suppose, uh, wedding uh, reception mm. areas on, on picturesque beaches mm. in some ways. Murder, she wrote. Exactly, <laughs> exactly in some ways. Um, his own house, but it, it kind of simulations of what Maine stands for in literature and that coziness is mm. kind of is kind of represented in, in a kind of second order uh, representation or denotation which means it's kind of distancing in some ways there's, mm. there's, there's not that same sense of coziness no and I mean I think I think part of that is the light so this this comes into my sense that it's almost this it's almost like we're in a late world here or a post-apocalyptic world like after literature like it feels like 
it feels like it's set around the equinox. Like the sun mm. is never high in the sky. It's it's lit in a way. The, I mean, there are lots of bright scenes happening in the background and lots of bright autumnal stuff happening in the background, but the characters are nearly always positioned in front of the sun. Mm. The sun's always mm. low. And I mean, it reminded me a little bit of the, you know, Gerald's game. Like, remember how much yes. Gerald's game revolves around that eclipse? So yes. the sun's low in the sky. There's a sense of equinox. The characters are always throwing vast shadows across the world. I mean, it's like it reminded me also of David Fincher and that there are bright sources of light, but they tend to enhance darkness yes. rather than illuminate space. That's right. Have you read Dolores Claiborne? I was going to say... I thought... Uh, yes. This, this is... I, I, I was actually going to say... That is the the closest point of reference, mm. I think, partly because Jennifer Jason Lee is here too. Mm. That is the closest point of mm. reference, both in terms of the sense of place, mm. but also the kind of agonised relationship between the three women. Yes. So it's yes. It's, it's that muted, sombre kind of mm. element. And I believe as well that was there was a lot of kind of diurnal, you know, yep. depictions there as, as well, like the moon and the sun exactly. became quite major characters in their own right and mm. that sense of kind of the diurnal rhythms became mm. major plot point exactly. in that particular and that's that's just gerald gerald's game to a certain yes. extent so much of gerald's game is that terror of the nighttime absolutely and the, you know, the approaching nighttime and the and the dusk and the and the flashbacks to the eclipse as mm. well um yeah and that's true like you feel like that's a good way to put it because you feel like the rhythms of small town life and of rural maine that were once so important to king have now been replaced with some more cosmic scale, like mm. a cosmic diurnal scale that in a way makes the story bigger and more expansive, but makes the characters seem more futile as yes. well in terms of what they're doing. And yes, I mean, so the nocturnal space here, it's probably worth saying, is is filled with monsters, yes. literally yep. and uh, figuratively mm. in some ways. So these are the scenes I found the, probably the least convincing yes. in this pilot. I don't think the CGI was particularly persuasive. And no. Uh, they just stood out for being, I suppose, a little bit too much, too much, I guess, telling and not enough showing. And I think you would say too that, like, you know, this later style of Kings, partly because it's only horror adjacent, but just partly because it has such profound reservations about literature itself, it, it doesn't lend itself in, as much to the high concept horror. No. So the bull. There's this word. <laughs> the bull hub. There seems to be an alternative world alternative or universe reality. Here. And yeah, with its own unique vocabulary, exactly. including the word bull and bull hunt. Exactly. So that that lexicon that that King loves bringing to his different works, like Red Rum. You know, it, he loves wordplay and the kind of distinct lexicon of an alternative world. Here. It, it just it it almost feels silly like it doesn't feel convincing just because the world around the characters already seems to have waned so much and to have diminished so much that an alternative reality in some ways is is less confronting than the reality they have yeah it's funny so a point of reference like i mean it or i guess a, a roundabout way of getting that like it feels like you know king has liberal kind of um affiliate he's, he's a liberal politically mm. and ideologically and it feels like over time that's probably become dissociated from that idealistic vision of small town life i mm. mean the small towns of the 80s that he depicted were firstly largely white and secondly depended on a certain you know probably middle class insularity and it just it feels like that's not not here anymore like no. that, that texture of white middle class small town life is not tenable you know, in 2021, and it's a roundabout way of saying it reminds me a lot of the way in which white people are represented in Twin Peaks and Return 
as kind of like oddball, atonal, minor, like stilted. Like it feels mm. like everyone in this world moves with a kind of stiltedness that mm. indicates that the spaces they once took up or the spaces they once felt comfortable in no, are no longer quite accommodate them. Mm. So it, it, it reminded me a lot, I have to say, of Twin Peaks, The Return, just mm. that, that slightly kind of pained, stilted, awkward... Mm relationality between the characters and i think that segues quite quite nicely to talking about this the director so the director mm. is pablo lorraine yes the and chilean filmmaker i believe and darius conji is a cinematographer okay so it's a very auteurist yes and stephen king wrote it yes the screenplay yes. so it's a very so the, i mean they've they've certainly apple certainly assembles the heavy the big mm. hit the heavy hitters here mm. in terms of creating this and this is i suppose you might describe it as a new genre of tv or at least mm. Uh, a genre that's really expanded recently, which where you give an auteur free reign mm. um, to, I guess, represent their particular vision mm. um, from cinema mm. in the TV space and give them a kind of big, mm. big uh, sandpit to play in. And, you know, Pablo Lorraine, I guess if you're going to describe his aesthetic, you'd probably describe it as kind of immersive, mm. imminent, circum- impressionistic. Circumambient. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So not exactly plot driven. No. And it is an unusual combination of this mm. aesthetic with the Stephen King adaptation. I, mean, I don't know whether it entirely works, but it's interesting. He's definitely, I mean, it sounds like, yes, exactly. And he, he seems to be interested in the parts of the novel that King himself thinks are most original, mm. i.e. the meditative mm. and the romantic, philosophical the romantic, and, and the romantic melodramatic yeah, It's elements. got a slight sweeping romantic quality yes. in some of the, the scenes of them you can almost you know, dancing see, at their wedding reception and so yes. forth. And you can almost see a kind of like Douglas Sirk, like you know, the, mm. co- the colours are autumnal, but they're lurid. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like in some ways I think he is well-placed to draw out what makes this an unusual Stephen mm. King story and mm. unusual adaptation and it is very beautiful to look at mm. which is important i think because mm. something we haven't said that's maybe a bit more banal is that it's it is quite slow yes and quite and it, i just have to say i there is something and this is a bit of a stephen king thing like just that those dual registers of just soporific yeah or histrionic it just yeah. it gets a it just gets a little bit to me by the end of the pilot yeah. and i think to a certain extent when you've got that quite meditative um I suppose immersive style mm. in some ways with rather preposterous subject matter. Yes, there's a weird discontinuity yep. in this pilot to a certain well, it extent. It prevents you sinking into it. Yeah, I think it like you know it prevents you fully immersing mm. yourself. And I don't think Pablo Lorraine is particularly a great director of space and place, in some ways, or in no. the way that Stephen King, this sort of classic Stephen King novel, it does. You know, so. But again, maybe that's that that sense of the small town and of rural Maine is a discrete space the collapse of that seems to be partly the subject matter here yeah that's true so that it is wor- true it works and those in that boundaries sense. yeah those but it's a very porous film to watch that's like right it's very yeah and it's porous not just in the actual spaces that we see but in the movement from scene to scene mm. i mean it all flows into one mm. and kind of tra- traffics in liminality like every yeah. scene is a, mm. is kind of dealing with some element of liminality you know with water and mm. bodies and, and often, time often just hard to see because yes. the char- like i said the characters are just in front of the sun yes. so much of the time so <laughs> look i think i'm i thought this was interesting and it's i thought it was a hard out but even talking about it mm. part of me is drawn back to it yeah but not not urgently i yeah. don't think i have to say i was very i was very keen to see this mm. um i obviously you know 
you know, greatly like Stephen Shane, King. Yeah. And, you know, the cast here is fantastic. It's top, a great cast. Top shelf cast. I thought the choice of director was really interesting. I think the cast suit the roles. Yeah, absolutely, they're yeah. Well, they're well yes. cast as yes, well. Yes, they are very well cast. Mm. Um, Clive Owen in particular is, is really great at, mm. you know, I suppose keeping a few cards up his sleeve. Like, yep. well, you know. Sure. So I think, yeah, but I agree. It was just the pacing was a little bit off and the, mm. and the world was was quite unbelievable mm. which it's a, a, a little bit King. turgid yeah so look, i'm, I'm yeah. provisional in yeah i'm the same okay so moving on from our bull hunt mm. to uh the sick mm. and our series is sweet tooth sweet tooth exactly now billy i know how much you you love YA literature film tv you just lap it up you can't you can't get enough of it look i feel like <laughs> i feel like I love YA when I was YA, and I'm very open to YA literature and TV series. I just think we, we saw a couple of we saw a couple of really bad ones on the podcast. And I think the tipping point for me was the Irregulars and the Nevers, like just two hour long turgid series set in this twee Victoriana kind of space. I just, especially, was it the Nevers, the Joss Whedon one? I think you were you were out on the blood and. Oh yeah, shadow and shadow, shadow and bone. bone. The, the Grishaverse, yeah. The Grish, it, 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 Let's be honest, you've, you haven't been in on any of the YA series that we've looked at. I so quite far. like that Australian one about the pregnant girl. Oh yes, true. That was but good. that's not really YA, I don't suppose. No, that's more kind of well, look, you know, I, I serial say, comic take on you know a a, a plausible scenario. This yeah. is. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought the audience for that was still it was intended. It yeah. was directed at y, at a YA yeah. audience. Yeah. Look, but look, I that think, was realism though. You know. Yeah, I think we just saw... It's just a certain tweenness to a certain kind of YA adaptation I can't deal with. But I I think we saw three pretty average ones in a row. And especially... I mean, Shadow and Bone was the tipping point. But The Nevers... I just... The Nevers did my head in. The Nevers was a a very, very tough watch. I couldn't have... But I I really liked this. I thought this was good. Well, I think this was was interesting. To Sweet Tooth. Um, So Sweet Tooth is an American fantasy drama. Uh, it's based on a comic book of the same name mm. by Jeff Lemire. Mm. Uh, the series was developed by Jim Mickle, uh, ah. Hollywood director. Have you seen any of Jim Mickle's work? <laughs> what, what Cold is... in July, for example. Oh, yes. Of, yes, kind I Kind of John Carpenter homage, which I, I quite liked. That. Yeah, it's good. Um, it premiered on Netflix uh, earlier this month and has been quite successful. Mm. So it's been number one on Netflix for, a, for a, an amount of time. Mm. So it indicates that it's found an audience. <laughs> and our premise... Is quite an unusual one. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's a kind of pretty prototypical mm. um, YA premise. So, ten years ago, the Great Crumble occurred, <laughs> whereby <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like like a like a baking like a baking competition. <laughs> the Great Crumble, the Great That's Crumble, the Great off. British Bake Off. Exactly. Also, the title of the Great British Bake mm. Off season two. Um, so, the Great Crumble uh, wreaked havoc across the world, whereby a mysterious virus uh, infected people, giving them the sick. As a result of this, a lot of the human race was wiped out, occurring at the same time, but mysterious in terms of the causality, was the emergence of a group of people called hybrids. Mm -hmm. So these are babies born around the same time as the sick, who have features of humans and also features of animals. Mm -hmm. Now, our protagonist, Gus, is a hybrid boy deer, Mm. and being a quite an unusual hybrid he's both loathed and also prized for his mm. his rare his i suppose his scarcity or rareness so well, not many not many hybrids it seems like the hybrids come in all sorts well, well there's, there's kind of an ellipsis isn't it because we have this prologue about the emergence of the virus and the arrival of the hybrids and then we just cut to this very 
specific story about the boy and his father living. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a lot that's left out in between those two parts of the pilot. That's right, yep. that's right. Um, so, yes, that's right. We cut to a scene of them, of the boy and his father in Yellowstone, mm-hmm. uh, striking out for the wilderness and establishing a camp that is completely isolated and independent of the mainstream world, which is which is really gone to gone to hell. Mm. So the world that we, the, I suppose, this pilot takes place in is largely this kind of bucolic uh, utopia inside mm. the bounds of Yellowstone National Park, but also with the always present threat of incursions from the outside. And, and he's, yeah, it's worth saying, isn't it, that the dynamic is that it starts with this this prologue about the virus and about the hybrids, and then that's all we hear from the outside world. It shifts to basically a story about the father and his yes. son living together, the son Could be the Lord of the Rings and the Shire. Yeah, exactly. It's completely... They're in a completely yes. isolated compound they've built. Yeah. And we don't know much about what's happening with the virus mm. or the hybrids until the very end of the pilot. Interesting intertextual illusion. Are you a fan of The Last Man on Earth? Well, I was thinking this. I mean, because Will Fort plays the <laughs> Will father. Will Forte, yeah, I so know. He's like, is, is he specialises. Is it Fort or Forte? I, I, I never Forte, know. Yeah. I'm not sure. Sydney Lumet, Sydney Lumet. I'm never... But exactly, so it's... And he's again the last man on earth. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I wondered if that was nice little in joke, intentional for yeah. those uh, yeah. binge TV mm. enthusiasts. Have, are you a fan of that series? I've only seen a couple of episodes okay. of it. It was. It was. <laughs> I, I remember other characters came into it, so I kind of felt okay. it cheated a bit. I was like, he, he wasn't the <laughs> it's last. False man. advertising. I know. Misleading advertising. He was one of several. <laughs> I just remember when other people came into it. I was like, mm, I'm not sure that. I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm out. <laughs> that was a really high concept premise. That's true. I guess yeah. it would have been pretty hard to sustain yeah. uh, several series if he was literally the last yeah, man yeah, on earth. Totally. Um, but okay, so we we uh, we have this boy and his father, mm. and we see a process of, process of growth and maturation, mm. and slowly their little idol is disrupted mm. by by a couple of missteps, a couple of illnesses, and the inevitable, the inevitable reality that that strikes their little encampment mm. from outside the the fenced off terrain of Yellowstone and we only find out like f- for reasons that you'll see when you watch the pilot the uh, what's the young boy's name Gus so Gus strikes out on his own at the end yes despite encountering a, a figure who a hunter figure who gives him a warning that hybrids are now killed and beheaded as prizes yes it's only at that point we discover we're in Yellowstone I think is that oh no I think oh, well I thought that was suggested at the beginning but I could be wrong I thought yeah I think that there's a kind of a twist okay. like he walks out and you see the Yellowstone oh okay you see oh, the Yellowstone was, sign oh, I must have I don't know I somehow picked that up you just recognise Yellowstone <laughs> <laughs> just, got, you just got, geographically you got Yellowstone vibes immediately <laughs> if I did I would have been completely wrong because this, this series is actually shot in New Zealand oh wow okay um, cool yeah so I think this is well, I, I, one thing I'm quite curious about is we've seen a lot of very unsuccessful YA adaptations, mm. at least in my opinion, mm. or semi-successful. I think this one is, is quite successful. I do too, yeah. And I'm very curious to to ponder why this is so successful mm. when we've seen so many, you know, also-rans mm. in some ways. Now, I, think, I think to go with that, like I think we've also seen a lot of f- films and TV series that have tried to tackle the pandemic with varying levels of success. Well, this is actually a pre-pandemic text in some ways. So it was actually, you know, uh, the, the comic book yep. predates it significantly. Sure. But I think the filming predates the pandemic as well. Is that right? Yes, ah. the premise was actually, th- and the adaptation was actually locked in in 2018. That's really interesting. So this is just one of those uncanny pieces of serendipity. I, I assume that it was made post-pandemic just because 
it would have been such an easy series to make socially distanced. I mean, most of it just involves two or three people in a forest. Yes. You know, there are no crowd scenes. There are no urban scenes. So yes. Well, this is possibly foreshadowing the future of film and TV production. Where you have these which smaller, small smaller, scale. Smaller scale mm. uh, projects that, mm. that focus on an isolated group of people. New Zealand mm. being virus-free, standing in for mm. our other low-cost destinations for Hollywood film production and TV production. Funny, one of my um, friends just shout out, Melissa, just as a sidebar, told me that you know, most major soap operas started filming again almost you know, at the height of the pandemic and just contrived plot devices to keep people socially distanced. Oh, right, so you'd okay, have people sure. speaking across rooms, no kisses. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. It's, it's definitely a text so that resonates with the oh, pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely. It feels like it's one of our way. first post-pandemic mm text absolutely i was thinking about why that was i mean i think it's partly because the pandemic embedded us back in nature in such a kind of uncanny way like Mm. it made you aware of your own body as just a conduit for nature so i remember there was i listened to a virus podcast and they had one of the virologists had this incredible speculation that in the United States, for example, it was quite possible that COVID would jump from a human to another animal, like a raccoon or something, in the same way to jump to humans. And from then ever after, raccoons or whatever the animal in question was would become a reservoir in the United States. Oh, yes. That sense of, the viral reservoir. That sense of being a conduit, I think, you know, and you know, embedded you back in nature in an uncanny way. But I, I also kind of thought the, the pandemic made you really aware of your body as a kind of hybrid of... I mean, a hybrid in various mm, as ways. As a host. As a host. So like a, a, a hybrid of you, as mm. you think of yourself, and potentially pathogenic microorganisms. Mm. So I remember throughout a lot of the pandemic, I was very aware of my own body as a hybrid of different microorganisms and a mm. hybrid of different life forms. So there was something about the way this deals with that and the way in which this hybrid awareness of the human body comes out of a pandemic that really resonated and i Mm. thought i thought that applied to the rest of the film so uh, the rest of the pilot sorry like i thought i don't know quite how to put this except to say that i thought the landscape felt hybrid so it felt like all the organisms in the landscape had kind of cross-pollinated or interbred there was a sense that the whole natural world was hybridized and blended with it It reminded me of annihilation Mm. like remember remember those who haven't seen it the film annihilation is about a group of scientists who investigate a phenomenon known as the shimmer mm. that emerges on the Californian coast. And the essential you know, premise of the shimmer, once they get inside, is that DNA from different species has started so to inter- started mm. to kind of fuse. And this, this felt a bit like that. Like there's this kind of... The world that the boy and his father inhabit has this kind of lushness. I mean, it's like... It's as lush as CGI can get at times without looking like CGI. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's that level of enhancement... And it feels like every living creature is somewhat hybrid or the forest itself is somewhat hybrid in that everything is kind of interfused to create this new kind of richness and Mm. lushness. So Mm. that part of it I really liked and Mm. I thought was really beautiful. And I wonder if that's taken from the graphic novel as well. Like I wonder if the graphic novel has that same visual Mm. richness. It definitely has a a whimsical quality to it. Certainly the... The encampment they set up and the, the kind of fairy fairy tale like little house and the I suppose little bucolic and just, farm just that the they establish like the forest scenes the color like yeah just the saturation the color the sense that it's been CGI enhanced but you can't see how it just felt like 
not it wasn't just that humans and, and and animals had started to converge, but that every part of the natural world was slowly, steadily converging. Mm, mm. That, that that that's why I thought it was really powerful as a pandemic text. I think the reason I liked it as a YA text is, you know, often and you know, I've been a YA myself, so I get this, but often YA <laughs> texts offer offer kind of really conventional aspirations and really conventional kind of you know goals in this kind of in a kind of slightly self-important or you know as if, as if no one's ever experienced it before yeah and that's that, true and that's certainly part of the ya kind of playbook it's a mode what i thought was interesting here was it i mean i wondered whether this series was like an allegory for raising a trans child like a hybrid like a, a father with a child who's hybrid in some way like the hybridity gave the story an edginess and gave the story I gave the kid a genuine difference, I thought, mm. that just made mm. it made his journey more compelling and, mm. and a genuine difference. Like, it wasn't just like the kids who are hybrid kid animals are seen as kind of cute oddities. He's told, if hunters find you, they will behead you and put your head yes. on a wall. So just, there's, you know, the same way that I guess a lot of trans kids face, you know, genuine life-threatening issues. There was a sense here that this hybrid child... His hybridity was a very high stakes issue for him. And mm. I just wondered, that just took the edge off the more basic element of the YA. I mean, we saw mm. that in the Grishaverse, like you have this absolutely basic romance, <laughs> but I, I just hated this romance between this girl and this guy. They're both, you know, the most kind of cookie cutter romantic leads, but because it's medieval or something and because they both like literature and they speak in English accents we're meant to buy it as some incredible no one's ever experienced this before so there's something about the kind of the self-important originality that YA ascribes to herself paired with the utter basicness that's been exhausting whereas this something about the kid here yeah. whether, whether you call him them trans or just a hybrid of another kind yeah. there was something about his journey that I thought felt genuinely high stakes mm. and felt genuinely mm original and i thought for the most part the series stayed away from tweeness as well it yes was, i liked it when it was survivalist yes and i liked it and i, I like that, that it, seems like that that's the main register or main yes. genre in which the show occupies yes. which is which is i think uh, it goes a lot of ya literature purports to be in this but it, yeah but there's no stakes a lot of YA literature is like it's i mean you know, i've been watching friends lately it's like how to survive being the cool kid and i i thought it really worked at the end we won't give away exactly how it happens but that the kid strikes out on his own like i think mm. it was at risk of getting a little bit stagnant yes but the quest narrative here yes and the gradual expansion of the world yes and i think that's that's one really important point to note as well yeah. over here is we've seen so many ya um adaptations that really belabor the world building yep. in some way. So you know everything about the world no, and there's no just, mystery I'm anymore. just feeling nauseous thinking about the Grisha. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the Grisha verse is a case in point, right? Because in Shadow and Bone, yeah. you have this entity mm. that separates the two lands. You yes. know, it's, this, it's like the wall in Game of Thrones. Yeah. But unlike in Game of Thrones, they show the entity in the first episode and it's yeah. completely banal. So the world building, it, it's, it, it throws everything at the wall. Yeah. And none of it <laughs> Nothing sticks. Nothing really sticks. Yeah, That's whereas, right. There's, there's so much, there's so much suggestion. About how much nuance. I dislike Shadow and Bone. Sorry, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> there's so much subtle suggestion and nuance, by the mm. way. This thread is just, is just foreshadowed, mm. um, not necessarily just depicted straight away so mm. there is a great mystery about what's actually happening in the world mm. what's happened to the sick and i love i love that sense that the sick is still out there yes even though most of humanity has been wiped out mm. so there's still there's still a lurking viral threat yes. in addition to the kind of 
I suppose, desperate humans who still remain and who have yes. kind of reverted to this kind of Manichean form of survival. And also we have no sense of what the social structure looks like now. No. Like it's been 10 years. And it's foreshadowed quite interesting, like, are you part of a company? Yes. So there's this yes. suggestion that there's this alternative mode of, yes. of kind of affiliation and social survival, which we, mm. we're not entirely sure uh, what form it's going to take. So that's, that's I think, really important that, mm. you know, that one of these series just don't have confidence in their story and don't yes. necessarily just show everything or yes, tell us too much. Exactly. And it's it's almost like the best YA takes the freshness of that time in your life and uses it to try and envisage how the world might be mm. or how the world, how society could look. But as you said, so often the result is just really conservative and basic <laughs> or it's just the series of the book doesn't have the courage to really go for it. So I think like Panic is a bit of a counterpoint. Oh, like, like absolutely. Pan- Panic had, I think Panic arguably had an even better premise than Sweet Tooth. Yes. But it did not have <laughs> the confidence to back it well, and it do something more with well, it. It literally started with a five-minute voiceover yep. by the main character explaining what the premise was. Yes, exactly. I mean, how little confidence can you have in your premise if, if that is the sort of, you know, connect the dots type yes. narrative plot you know plotting it, device it you've felt, used. it felt pressured to make it yeah exactly and you know the end no confidence in the intelligence no. of its audience and patience of the audience and, either and compare you know compare the ending of the two series just in terms of dexterity and like mise-en-scene i mean you know panic you end with some five minute story about the dirt girl that was just <laughs> i just couldn't i couldn't deal with that as she jumps into a quarry big whoop whereas here you have this fantastic scene with this hybrid you know, trans kid have you described him them um it's not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think they're a person yeah no 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 but like but no but what i mean is like i mean i'm saying hybrid trans oh, interchangeably sure, sure, here and sure. I'm, I'm not being twee about pronouns sure. like it's the kid is presented as a guy but i genuinely think it will be read as a trans allegory so i'm so when i say hybrid trans i mean i'm saying you know in some sense they're hybrid or trans yeah, you know allegorically yeah. no, no, I think you, that's right. you end with this great scene where they leave the kind of the forest and they run out and you think that's going to be the closing scene but then you have they exit Yellowstone they come across a road they look out at an expanse over you know power lines like there's such an incredible sense of expansion and world building at the end yes and there's a dexterity to it this sense of this conscious effort to build atmosphere and place and pacing yeah. which is just completely absent yeah. from the five minute monologue about the dirt girl <laughs> I, that, that's one of my that is, one, that is one of my dear listeners that is one of my lowest points in pilot club there once was a dirt girl okay and then she realized she wasn't dirt okay five minutes later but then she thought she might be dirt i mean just use another <laughs> use another motif this is this is tortuous so look yeah i think it's funny, this is a bit like Lisa's story in that like, I watched it and I was like, I really like it, I'm not sure it's for me. But actually I found myself coming back to it and thinking, mm. I wonder what happens next mm. in the story. It's, like, I'm, a, I'm curious about the world. It's a very artful pilot. Yeah. There's, there's good world building and there's something alluring about seeing that world, you know, all the kind of icons or figures that we are so familiar to us kind of rendered in this kind of dilapidated mm. state in mm. some ways as well. You know, just that that sense of kind of dilapidation and yeah, that kind of weird reconfiguring of But also the uncanniness, society. like the uncanniness of a series mm. that nearly entirely takes place in, in the woods in one hut. Yes. But then that glimpse at the end of like power lines, yes. it's like yes. the end of the village or something. It's That's really right. Eerie. Oh, that, that was actually something that just really, the really village, yeah. recalled in my mind. The yes, the whole, the whole kind of narrative trajectory of the yes, village absolutely. Kind of that repeated in some ways here. Totally. Yeah. So look, I'm... I'm a provisional in for this. I, I, I thought I thought I thought this was easily the mm. best YA series we've seen in a long time. Oh, I think that's right. Nothing about the Dirt Girl. <laughs> um, 
And um, yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, yeah. I hope it does well because I think it's yeah. really effective. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, I think it will do well. And mm. I think the, the the talent behind this is is quite notable as yep. well. And you can see that that artistry, mm. visual artistry on, on the screen. Well, you love Mickle. You love Mickle's work. <laughs> I'm all about You're Mickle. You're a Mickle man. <laughs> okay, so on to our third series mm. for the night. And we're looking at season four of In Treatment. Mm. Now, this is an interesting, I suppose, you might describe it's category error or category fraud, given this is not a new series, but there have been a couple of very significant reconfigurations of this Mm. series that justify why season four operates as a kind of standalone pilot in its own right. And maybe follows on from last week where we did the third season of Master of None. Yeah. I mean, the departure is not quite as radical here, but in both cases, you have such a dramatic reconfiguration of the series, it's effectively... Exactly right. So I think this this certainly qualifies. I mean, 10 years have passed since the season three finale. And in our fourth season, our protagonist, therapist is Uzo Aduba, Mm -hmm. um, who plays the empathetic Dr. Brooke Taylor. So she's playing the Gabriel Byrne character from the original. The Gabriel Byrne character. So we have a shift to um, present-day Los Angeles as well. That's an interesting question. Where where was the original set? I I don't know. I don't know. I think it was somewhere east, it felt felt like. Somewhere maybe New England, New York. But it's interesting, I have no sense really of where it was... Yeah, that's that's part of it. Like yeah. it's so hermetic. Yes, that's right. I have no that's sense. Right. Yeah, we'll this come has back to a, that. This has a clearer sense of yep. of location and locale, um, certainly. So, again, uh, like the original first three series, um, this focuses on a series of patients that uh, our therapist treats over the course of the season. Now, each episode focuses on a different patient. And they take turns in returning to the certain patients mm. to show their journey through the process of therapy. Now, therapy, <laughs> as Gabriel Byrne pronounced it, you need therapy. <laughs> therapy. Now, I only watched half of season one, mm. but in my defence, it's incredibly voluminous yes. series. So there are, I believe, of like forty odd episodes in season one, and, and, and then thirty odd in season two, and twenty odd in season three. So my understanding, I think I recall, this was the first ever half hour HBO drama. Okay, and it, it's just funny. Like, just my first impression watching this reboot, effectively, is how long ten years ago seems. So this series now feels to me like another era, and I was, I was trying to think why. I think two reasons. Firstly, it was so embedded in DVD culture. So, <laughs> as you said, you know, the first season was like how many episodes? Like, I think it was. I think it was in the forties. Forty so or fifty incredible. episodes. When I saw it, I was like, I've never seen a series. So, I, mean, I don't know what season a season of Friends. How many episodes are in a season of Friends, yeah, well, for example? Well, like tw- twenty-four. So, okay, so it's even yeah, it's so twice as long. I remember on the one hand because because there were so many episodes in a season. It was a very thick DVD set, mm. but also the logistics of it. <laughs> so those ones that folded out in a really fo- awkward way. It folded out in a really <laughs> awkward. But it was also like a prestige object. Yeah. And I remember very clearly, you know, each disc like had one or two weeks worth of sessions on it. So it was, it was the kind of series that absolutely spoke to that DVD spectatorship. Yes. But at the same time, it was still very embedded in appointment viewing because the way in which it was structured was that you were meant to watch it every night of the week. Monday to Thursday, 
each night would be Gabriel Byrne with patients one to four, and Friday would be him with his therapist. Right. So if you you know for the duration of each season, if you checked in every Tuesday night, mm. it'd be the same patient. So right. it was this kind of unique text that was at mm. once. It's a very time hungry series. Yes, but but also <laughs> like at once completely attuned to regular week, weekly viewing and completely attuned to DVD viewing. Okay. So it was like this. Did you watch it? In that form. No, so I so back then I didn't have any access to HBO, so I watched it on a DVD. But I remember out of all the shows I watched on DVD at that time, this one felt the most eventful. It felt okay. the, the most eventful to watch on DVD, and I felt. I mean, it's so hard to recapture now, but that thrill, I mean, you know, you and I grew up at a time where being able to watch television shows at will, like on VHS, was completely unheard of. And even as late as 2010, I still remember that thrill of having an entire DVD box in my hands. Yes. And this one, more than any other, this series captures that. So that's just my preface is to say, it's very strange to return to this 10 years later. And I think a lot has changed and not... I'm not sure if it's that the show is not as good or just the televisual landscape has changed, but there are some massive departures in terms of style and approach, I think. Mm, So mm. do you want to talk through your impressions? Interestingly, I've only got very hazy memories of the first season, which I watched sporadically for Mm. a time before I lost Mm. patience. I I wasn't watching it in that kind of ideal episodic way that you suggested, but I found it quite a slow-moving series okay. and, and very theatrical, very mm. stagey And maybe I should ways. say, you know, you know, I was in a bit of a transitional phase in my life then too in various ways around work and jobs and aspirations. So this series to me was very comforting. Okay. You know, like it's, you know, if anybody, you know, I can imagine during COVID it's the same. Like we all go through these kind of transitional periods and this show was a warm bath. Okay. I mean, it is such a comforting show to return to. <laughs> Gabriel Byrne Gabriel, and, and Diane Weiss. Yeah, Diane. And... <laughs> Those who know me will know that if, if there's one person I love more than Gabriel Byrne, it is Diane Weist. So the two of them together. But just, well, look, yeah, so I, I, it's, the original was very comforting. Um, and I can, I can see why they tried to reboot it during COVID. What are your impressions of how it's different? Yeah, so, from, what, from what you remember, what do you think is... What yeah, you... so I think, I think obviously we've got a big gender swap. Yep. We've got a, a, a race swap yep. in some ways as well. We've got a, a location swap. Mm-hmm. As well, and I think in some ways this this season seems to be kind of interrogating some of the blind spots in the original yep. first three seasons. So there's there's clearly a political point that's being made here. Um, well, not, neither character is white. You've got well, Anthony, that's right. Ramos. You've got yeah. um, the therapist. And in some ways, I guess this is this is attesting to the fact that therapy traditionally has been a kind of indulgence mm. by you know upper middle class fairly wealthy white people yep. in some ways. So we're, we're trying to correct mm. that, that I suppose, historical legacy associated with the, the therapeutic relationship and, the, and, the, and I suppose the profession of therapy. And this seems like something which became really visible during COVID, right, at a time when mm. a lot of people realised just that mental health care is a basic health need. That's right. And you saw this proliferation during COVID of online forms of therapy delivery. Yeah, of the kind we see here yeah. so like it's yeah it, it, and i think that's right and i think interestingly that the the pilot certainly speaks to that yep. to that um, to that legacy and, and trying to i suppose challenge it in a certain way because the patient is anthony ramos play who plays a a patient called eladio mm-hmm. and eladio is a live-in care nurse for mm-hmm. a wealthier couple mm-hmm. and their uh, disabled son we can we can kind of intuit and he's having some issues 
with with nightmares and inability to sleep, mm. which he's resorted to uh, self-medicating mm. uh, to get him through. So it is interesting, this, mm. this dynamic, because the therapy is conducted on Zoom mm. and... Aladio has chosen has chosen to to live in with the with the uh, the wealthier couple as a result of forming part of their kind of their bubble their their household. So you in see terms a of, kind of you see yeah. a precarious labour, you know, exactly cl- and, yeah, class differences that's manifesting right. themselves. That's in right. Pandemic yeah. protocol. And the only reason he's able to afford therapy is because of the, uh, the I guess the beneficence of his mm. of his employers. Mm in some way. So you definitely see, you get a sense mm. of his, the fact this needs to be a kind of slightly surreptitious process mm. because if he was frank with his, with his employers, they'd probably fire him. Mm. Um, so I think that's, I think that's quite powerful. And I think interestingly, it's a really interesting yeah, angle. Yeah. Yeah. This also focuses on, this is probably the first genuinely, you know, pandemic or post pandemic text that we've looked at because the pandemic is omnipresent here. We're yes. dealing with a relationship that's conducted electronically on zoom yep. uh, mm. i suppose the trauma mm. of of the pandemic and mm. the way it's divided people physically mm. geographically emotionally Certainly. is 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 underscored um i think the the space of the, the where the therapy is taking place is quite an interesting one and that that also is a major character here in a way that i didn't necessarily feel like space or place or Okay. Or, or location was was a major so feature in the he, earlier seasons. Here I have to cut in and say I have exactly the opposite response. <laughs> okay. So like, you know, as so that's so interesting. So like, my response is almost the opposite. So, as a fan of the original series, I found this so bewildering spatially compared to the original. So, okay. the original. It's not a criticism exactly, but the original is so confined to the therapist's office so the therapist's office is is absolutely a character there in itself and there are there are objects that you get attached to there are objects that the therapist and the patients look at in the course of therapy mm. just they become the focus of their sight lines well, i think there, there is one clear object here that's already yes that's already kind of a motif in some ways yes. and that's unusual that unusual abstract sculpture with the the orange liquid yes which which mirrors the in the credit opening credit titles yeah. But I think that's like a throwback. So I think okay. that doesn't belong in this space. I mean, in the old space, there were images like the ship in the bottle. It's a very fluid, yeah. fluid yet contained space. Um, so the whole original series takes place in this very, you know, like oak-covered, like upholstered, cosy, intimate interior space. Whereas here, the, it, it's a completely porous... The, the, the original is hermetic in its yeah. style, whereas here... The sense of space is porous. I mean, it starts with her on a mobile phone call mm. to the, the patient wandering outside by her pool. It's set in LA. Even the fact that you immediately know it's set in LA indicates how much more porous it is. Mm. You know, her apartment is all open plan. It's all, you know, glassy surfaces. And the fact that she's communicating via Zoom opens up a kind of another interface as well. Mm. Whereas in the original, the few times that we moved outside of the therapy room were always very eventful. Yeah. So whether they were just to see other parts. I mean, the therapy room to us, we were put in the position of patients where even the slightest, because the therapy room in the original was also embedded in the therapist's house. Yeah. But like the patients, even the slightest glimpse of his personal life was titillating. So right. There, there are occasional asides to the rest of his house, occasional asides to his garden, 
and every now and then a very rare scene away from it. But it was so bounded. Mm. So the specificity the of, of it made it all the more yes, kind of meaningful. Absolutely. And, you know, it it reminded me of like this Freudian idea that like the journey to therapy and back from therapy is part of therapy. So mm. if you arrive late to therapy, even if it's accidental, inverted commas, it's something you discuss. So yeah. in the original, there is such a dramatic sense of entries and exits. Mm. So you're always very aware of how the characters have arrived and how they leave. And at times, what happens if they encounter each other? So again, the kind of very Freudian idea is that the waiting room, the vestibular space is so important for therapy. And there is no traditional waiting room in the original, if I recall right, but the points of entry and exit mm. are very demarcated. So, so would is, a Zoom waiting room qualify? No, so this, this, is, this is so different. And it's, I mean, another way of putting that is in what's so important about the original is the shared space of a patient and therapist and the drama of therapy and the the fact that both parties are, are enigmatic to each other mm. like the therapist is enigmatic to the patient mm. of course because mm. of transference but of course the patient is also somewhat enigmatic to the therapist because mm. the therapist doesn't know what the patient's agenda really is mm. and there's counter transference there so mm. that that sense of therapy as a shared space and as a drama, as an enigma, mm. as a puzzle, mm. I thought was completely, and it's not, you know, this is not exactly a criticism, but I thought it was completely lacking here just because there is no shared space. And I thought maybe that's part of what it's about. I mean, it seems like, you know, although the main character is experiencing, the main patient is experiencing clinical depression at some level, the main psychological affliction here is COVID. Mm. And what COVID did so traumatically was reduce shared space. Mm. So I just found it so disorienting, like a series that was once all about the enigma, the drama of therapy, the shared space of the office is now splintered into a Zoom chat. And whereas mm. before you're always caught in this really intense sight line between Gabriel Byrne and whoever his patient was, mm. now you're in that weird space in front of the Zoom screen. And, <laughs> and it tries to... It tries to kind of flesh it out by alternating between where the two characters are. So yeah. we shift from the therapist's room to the patient's room. But in a way, that made it worse for me. It just made me even more aware that there was... Mm. And it's interesting because it opens with the therapist apologising for taking his mobile phone call. She says, mm. look, I shouldn't have done that. That, oh, that was unprofessional. I'm sure this mm. happens in therapy, mm. the boundaries. Are, but that would never have happened. Like in the original, the boundaries were so clear. Right, right, right. That, and spatialised. Yeah, and, and they were sometimes traversed, but it was so dramatic. So this, I wondered if this reflected a more casual and more pressing and just more pragmatic approach to therapy in the wake of COVID. Like we, mm. in COVID, we don't have time to sit down and discuss childhood, you know, fixations for years at a time. Yeah. We need therapeutic solutions delivered clearly and pragmatically. Yeah. So it's a more I, pragmatic kind of therapy, which yeah. was timely, but for me, less mysterious and <laughs> okay. less, in, less intriguing okay. than the original. Oh, to me, to me this, this very much evoked a moment in some ways and evoked the kind of emotional labour um, that yeah. isolation and look, imposed on people in some a- ways. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, look, I can't fault any of that. I agree. Like, I agree. It absolutely captured Didn't that. Didn't you think it was powerful to see that, to see... I guess that that moment that's so recent recent history Look, committed to to celluloid I, I, or committed I thought, to I thought it was powerful the same way I thought the film lockdown was powerful like I thought oh. it was uh, I mean it's, it's better than lockdown it's better than lockdown look this is quite artful though I got to say I think it's better than lockdown I still <laughs> but yes and no like I kind of Look, I, I pay everything you're saying. Like, I agree. Like, I think it, it is, it does capture a moment. It does capture the way therapy has changed. And it has captured this move to a more pragmatic kind of therapy. Mm. Mm. I just felt, to me, 
it never felt like a session. Mm. It just felt like a conversation. It just felt like a chat, which is fine. But that that sense of the therapist and the patient being enmeshed in this great psychic drama, that's what made it drama for me. Whereas mm. this just felt more like a Did, docudrama to didn't me. Didn't you get that sense though? The, the relationship between her and... And Aladio, in some ways, was quite quite a quasi maternal. But 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 I felt that was too fast as well. Like that okay. that, that that transference and counter transference, it emerges in yeah. the treatment yeah. as it does in say the Sopranos, yeah, or as it does in web therapy. Have you ever seen that? No, I've this, never seen you, that. You know, no. this is Lisa Kudrow, one of one of Lisa Kudrow's two great post friend things. It's, it, she plays a web therapist. Okay, and it's all on YouTube. So this is also obviously that web therapy doesn't play, take place during COVID, but this is drawing heavily on web therapy. I think. I mean, both of those have the tr- classic transference narrative in them. Mm. All three of those texts, web therapy, that is present here, though. But I think it comes in too quickly. Like I think, mm. it, I, I think it comes in from the very first scene. Whereas I think transference. But there's a suggestion that there've been prior yes, therapy sessions in some ways. But again, what I liked about the original was the fact that these are new patients, so you get to know okay. them, and they get to know the therapist at the same pace that you're watching it. I have to say too, this is a bit of a you know a kind of you know confession i'm not massive on anthony ramos like I, I i don't find him convincing i mean i've seen him quite a bit he was in the reboot of will and grace i don't find him convincing as a screen actor okay. i mean he you know he he cut his teeth hamilton in the heights he's obviously a very acclaimed stage actor i find his delivery quite stagey okay. and i thought here combined with the zoom format it inclined the series towards monologues mm. and granted the original does have monologues mm. but I just thought, I thought the drama of therapy. I mean, something I wondered. Do you think it will all be Zoom? All no, it's, focus it's, on, on different modes of therapeutic I, transmission. I have to con- confess. I, I watched episode two. Yes. And episode two is more conventional face to face. It's okay. the first consultation between her and her patient. Very different patient. Okay. Very different uh, doctor patient relationship. So I think in some ways the second episode is slightly stronger. I, uh, I, I think I prefer that. Yeah. But I, but I, I did really enjoy seeing that certain historical moment. Sure, uh, I, I agree with that. You know, and look, depicted and in look, some ways. I thought, I thought Uzo Aduba is actually very, is actually great. very she's convincing great. I mean, in this I th- role. I think she, she is great. And, and she's... I, th- I think in some ways that um, her role and I guess her race and her mm-hmm. gender are interesting inflection points for the sure. series. And, and, you know, and especially in episode two where you see a wealthy white kind of tech bro who's kind of, sure. um, you know, run afoul of the law. Interacts with her is, is is actually a very powerful sure. episode, but so I agree this is a pilot. I, I complete. So. It's funny. All I, I guess I said I completely credit the social commentary it's making mm. about therapy, and I completely mm. credit the way it reflects the present moment. I just feel like that that great. <laughs> Do you want that ship in the bottle? <laughs> but also, yeah, and that great the, the drama, the enigma, and the drama of therapy. Yeah, I, I found so compelling in the mm. original, and and that sense of a shared space. You know, I, I know, I know, you know, I'm not in therapy myself, but I know people who've been in therapy for 20 years, mm. for decades, mm. you know. Mm. This is very common in America. There'll be people who've seen a therapist for the last 25 years. Mm. That drama, that agon mm. of therapy. Um, mm. Somebody I know is seeing a therapist and once ran into her therapist at the theatre. Wow. And when she ran into her therapist... A violation. At, or when she ran into her therapist at <laughs> the theatre, they both left. Because <laughs> it was so intense. That, that intensity of the therapist yeah. being somebody who is just intimately, you know, proximate to your mind, yes. but also distant in an exotic way. Yes, yes. I just, I thought it, I thought just that captured it so well in the original. And I know this is doing a different thing. I just found it less alluring for that okay. reason. But I, I am curious to watch more as well. I haven't ruled it out. And it is an interesting and timely inflection. So I am an in for this. 
Okay. Yeah, I think I'm a provisional, in, even though I, I, I actually enjoyed this probably more than the okay. first. I don't know that might be heresy I can't, in the intrinsic circumstances. <laughs> I think. Well, I think you have to. I, 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 not to sound like a douche, but go back and rewatch the whole first season with Gabriel Byrne. Then we'll talk. I think one really intriguing plot point as well is what the relationship between between this therapist therapist is and Gabriel Byrne's. Yes. So the suggestion is a mentor-mentee relationship, yes. but it's it's only sketched out. And it's also fascinating to see what her relationship with her own therapist will be yes. in the Friday sessions. Because yes, they were often right. the best episodes Okay. Yep, in the original okay. uh, Diane Weiss haircut. is amazing. <laughs> so look, I, I'm in. Okay. Okay, on to our Pilot Club archive choice for this week. So I've chosen a bit of an unusual um, archive option the unreleased pilot of Mulholland Drive. Yes. So th- those of you who've heard the podcast will know that we're big fans of David Lynch and we, we love Twin Peaks. And many of you will know that the David Lynch film Mulholland Drive, released in 01, 02, 2002 in Australia, I think, um, which went on to win you know prizes at Cannes across the world, was originally conceived as a television series. and Network TV series. Network TV ABC. series. So Lynch... Um, came up with an idea in the late 90s, filmed a 90-minute pilot in 1999, showed it to ABC. ABC rejected it. Well, apparently it was 125 minutes in yes. its original cut and he, yes. had to, he had to excise 37 minutes to make it fit the, uh, the network's kind of regimented, uh, I guess, time slot. Exactly. And that's something that's kind of interesting because Lynch has, you know, has said in interviews that the... The pilot he presented was some of his worst work and that it was messy, it didn't flow, it didn't cohere, and that he's embarrassed it's still in circulation. I, I couldn't disagree more. I thought this was a phenomenal pilot did you, in some did, ways. Did you watch the 125-minute version or the 90-minute the 90 version? The 90-minute version, on, okay. On YouTube? Yes, that's, that's right. That's the only one. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, yeah, the for the basic kind of production history, this was filmed, you know, in like 1999, it was then shown to the studios. The ABC executive hated it on first watch. And then one of Lynch's associates at Canal Plus suggested that he rework it into a feature film. And um, Lynch tells a story about... The, I'm not sure what this story even means. But <laughs> Lynch's story that the guy who rejected it was watching it at 6am drinking coffee. I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, the story is in some ways similar to the film. So we have three kind of major characters. We have Betty, played by Naomi Watts, an aspiring actress coming to Los Angeles. We have a woman known as Rita, played by Laura Lena Herring, who in the opening scene of the film um, is about to be shot by a group of unknown men in a limousine on Mulholland Drive. When the cars hit, everyone dies but her. She stumbles down into the Los Angeles foothills, you know, seeks refuge in an apartment that's that's owned by Betty's aunt. Betty arrives to um, Los Angeles, takes over the apartment for an unspecified period of time, and they set out to find her identity. And then on the side, we have the character Adam Kesher, the director played by Justin Theroux, who's in the middle of casting a film, and a shadowy conglomerate tell him he has to cast a particular girl in the main role. That's this, the girl. This is the girl. <laughs> this is the girl. Um, so I would say, I mean, I this watching this pilot was such a bittersweet experience for me mm. because... I mean, I, I love the original film. It may be my single favourite David Lynch film, but I would also have loved to watch this series. Yes. And I don't know which one I would prefer. And look, I would say that the the, the pilot is similar in some ways and different in others. So it it has the same signature as the film in some ways. So I'll talk to you about how it's the same and how it's different. So the similarity is that you have many of the same characters and the same plot points. What you don't have is a third act of the film that retrospectively 
like frames it as fantasy. Yeah. And after watching the pilot, that feels a bit tacked on, I think. Like yes. that last part. Of the, and I, I've got to say, like I know that there are all kinds of academics and psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic theorists who say that that third act makes the film. It's probably my least favourite part of the film. I agree. The first two, the first two acts, I think, are my favourite. And what, what I love about those first two acts is I think, I mean, I feel like I have so much to say about this. I'm trying to organise my thoughts. At a basic level, this is like the film without that third act tacked on and with less surreal interludes but a more pervasive sense of strangeness, Mm. I think. So you have relatively discrete plot points and a more methodical expansion of the narrative. And some things in the film make a lot more sense here, Mm. I think. But you have... It's I think more it, conventional in its structure. Yes, but I think an even more, in some ways, an even more poised tone. So watching this, I just felt this uncanny recognition that this this should have been the series that succeeded Twin Peaks. There's yeah. that same perfect blend of eeriness, offbeat humour, and yeah. 50s dreaminess. Yes. Like, the tone is so poised. And, you know, again, I know that the surreal asides and the dream ending is part of where the critical acclaim for the original film comes from. But just seeing seeing it, what you see here mm. is is a side of Lynch I love most, which is a kind of uncannily intensified normality yes. rather than overt dream sequences yes. or overt fantasy. Yes, and this is this is a more disciplined Lynch where he's, yes. he's still interested in plotting yes. and tone. And look, Mulholland Drive is a different kind of discipline and I love Lynch's comment that Mulholland Drive was what the series always wanted to be and I just had to get there this way. Like there is a very real sense in which Mulholland Drive could never quite be the series or quite the film. Like I I can't imagine the series would have ever quite got the sublime cinematicity of the film. You would never have seen it on a big screen. But, oh, boy, watching this, I wish mm. I could live in two alternative universes at once and see this series yeah. unfold. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's very curious that this wasn't greenlit. So well, I, I think I thought just it, looking at it, it's, it's a magnificent pilot. It must have. I mean, yeah. it, is, it is so poised in terms of tone that it, you, the only explanation you can give is that you had a com- super conservative ABC executive yeah. or it triggered him. I mean, it is such a pointed damnation of yeah. the show business industry yeah. and it is so irreverent in the way mm. in which it deals with it, but so unsettling. I, th- I think they just viewed it from the risk-reward risk, standpoint risk management. and they just thought yep. that this was just too surreal, it was too offbeat, it might have taken a few pointed jabs at, at mm. the Hollywood studio and mm. production system mm. as well. Um, but I have to say, like, you know, whatever version this is, whether it's 125 or 90 minute, it works. And the 90 minute version, I think, works perfectly as a pilot. Beautifully. It's it's more conventional. It's pilot structure. It's got an A plot, a B plot, a C plot. Mm. All of them offer intriguing and tantalizing Mm. hints or kind of tissues of the the, Mm. the narrative that that seem to kind of coalesce around this Uh, particular kind of ellipsis about about this main character and, the and, laura lane and, harding can we, character can we talk about that ellipsis too i mean i remember when i watched twin peaks for the first time with you back at the end of high school i was struck and entranced by the the possibility for narrative complexity so that that mm. moment when laura palmer is discovered on the beach you sense an endless proliferation of narrative possibilities mm. that only long-form television can glimpse yes in mulholland drive those first couple of moments with reader in the car are the same thing yeah like that moment when you're seeing everything as it's happening in real time you're there with her in her original incarnation whoever she is and then it feels like so much could spin out from that and yeah. you sense that in the film but as a series 
you can you can imagine watching this each week and just going back again and again to that fateful crash on Mulholland Drive in the same way that when watching yeah. Twin Peaks, you go back again and again to Laura's body. Yeah, it's, well, just, it's think, so in, yeah. it's so intriguing. In some ways, this this is a pilot that's a series of kind of tantalising suggestions mm. rather than necessary kind of continuations. Mm. In some ways, so there's just mystery upon mystery that, mm. that gradually builds and threshold upon threshold yep. that's crossed mm. in some ways. So, but the tone is so poised too, like. Each of the stories is embedded enough in normality that the strangeness feels even more pervasive. And just the diction and mm. the, the, the dialogue and just a sense of mm. swagger is so, like, there are so many great moments yes. of just cinematic diction here, like the cowboy. Yes. If you do good, <laughs> I'll see you two more times. Of course, yeah. that's in the original film, yeah. but just seeing it allowed to breathe in a mm. long form television mm. pilot. I think that's honestly where Lynch is strongest. He's strongest when he's he's bound in a real world, a realistic world, mm. but adding that kind of uncanny, surrealistic mm. quality to it. So it's certainly the most I mean, I find for me, whatever I might think theoretically, it's the most enjoyable Lynch to watch. Like yeah. it is so it's it so def- tantalizing yeah. to watch. I think that's right. And I think what's interesting as well is that obviously uh, Twin Peaks is considered a collaboration between mm. um, David Lynch, who's kind of surrealistic mm. directorial style, is you know has imprints all over the the pilot, and Mark Frost, who's a more conventional like TV Blues. director, yeah. you know showrunner and mm. so forth. This is directed and written by David mm. Lynch, and has a lot of the qualities of Twin Peaks. So yes. narratively fairly coherent, mm. also has that kind of offbeat humour that we and, associate with Twin and Peaks. And it's funny, it's not it's not always laugh out loud humour, but it's it's that it's it's you laugh in delight. At the sheer panache, yeah, like the sheer but screenwriting. Some, but there are funny, there are a lot of there are some really funny kind of screwbally kind yeah, of slapstick moments. Like, like for example, the hitman who's yes. kind of a little bit too good, a little bit, but not quite good enough at his job. Yep, where yep. he kind of orchestrates this weird massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Justin Throw wife cheating sequences, yes. which are just entirely bizarre. Is there a cameo from Billy Ray Cyrus in this? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and look, exactly. I mean, just. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because, look, I mean, you know, can I confess something to you now? Like, Mulholland Drive is one of my favourite films of all time. But part of me, the dream sequence thing at the end feels artificial. Like, mm. it feels like an artificial way to wrap it up. And yeah. this, this pilot explains yeah. why. Like, this pilot... I mean, yeah. so, It makes kind of explicit what was already kind of tantalisingly suggested. Yes, and also, but also there are certain plot points that are much more fleshed out here, but also more enigmatic. So, you know... The police procedural, the police investigation, you sense more of, but especially more of the criminal network, because mm. it's it's worth saying that another major plot point revolves around. Well, I've already said it, but just reiterating that, that another major plot point revolves around a, a shadowy criminal mm. slash supernatural network insisting that a girl be cast, a woman be cast for a film. That network is much more tangible, but also more ethereal here. Yeah, and you know, I, I feel like this series, if it had continued would have been driven by networking and especially by phones. I mean, there are so many yeah. phone calls here. Like the last scene, you know, is interrupted by a fan, by a phone call that, a fan call, by a phone call that in the film signals the kind of shift into kind of overt fantasy. There's constant calls to or from unseen parties. It's like Lynch is trying to visualise cinema becoming part of some more networked medium. Like people are always calling, hanging mm. up. And that, that, that network of shadowy phone callers again evokes this complexity that you would have just loved to have seen yeah. explored over. And I feel like Lynch had probably learned the mistakes of Mul- of Twin Peaks as well. Yeah, you know, this would have if he'd done it, it would have mm. been written and directed. It would have been an even more auteurist mm. project. So mm. 
I, in some ways, I think it's almost like a commentary. This is this this pilot is almost like a commentary of the means of its production. Yes. In some ways, so the kind of shadowy network of kind of financiers, you know, dark money, mm. uh, kind of this weird kind of centripetal forces that that lead to a kind of Hollywood film production. The fact yes. that Hollywood itself is becoming less of a kind of source of finance and the kind of there's a kind of mysterious chain yes. of 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 finance and producers that lead to a kind of production in some ways that stymied this production. Yes. And so you kind of see that you see that kind of complicity between producers, directors, financiers I think, I think who can what... actually who can actually kind of erode the production of a of a of a pilot like this, so it, it, it is actually interesting in that sense, that kind of meta level as I, well. I think that's also why it feels, at some level, I mean, part of the kind of the bittersweet experience of watching it is exactly because it is partly an allegory of its own production and because it takes place at this juncture, really between, you know, traditional analog cinema and a more network digital space. So Lynch's next film, Inland Empire, is his mm. first digital film. This is like a passage into that mm. because it takes place at that juncture. I prefer this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I think because it takes place at that juncture, you do feel that maybe the ultimate bit of sweetness is you feel that Mulholland Drive at this moment in history could never have existed entirely as a film or a TV series. Mm, like mm. the experience of Mulholland Drive, the text, yeah. the meaning of it lies precisely in yeah. that suspension between pilot and film. I think possibly this is one of those things where the kind of myth around it yep. has kind of, I guess, added to the allure but and I, the, the, the intrigue. But of I must say, sense. like, m- watching it really. It didn't feel like an anticlimax. Like no. and it's just worth saying, we we watch it on YouTube. The only place you can see it is on a YouTube yeah. kind of clip. Everything that I wanted to know more about, may know is the wrong word, but everything I wanted to explore more, yeah. every space I wanted to be more immersed in, every mystery I wanted to become more tantalising in the original film on the theatrical mm. release, is satisfied here. So, mm. Mm. It, to, and, to that point as well, I think what's interesting is the way that this foreshadows Twin Peaks The Return. Yes, absolutely. So I had, I, you got a lot of sense of the kind of same motifs that were at work mm. or at play here as in Twin Peaks The Return, for example. Mm. The um, the kind of decaying body on the bed. Yes. And that space and that kind of, that moment of discovery and revelation. Which, which again, you know... The, the possession is, narrative, the slightly hint of the supernatural, yes. the police procedural. And, and there is this fan speculation that Wisteria, the David Lynch series that's reportedly in production will converge the worlds of Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks in some mm. way, partly because Wisteria is a prominent Los Angeles plant. So, mm. and, and yes, I mean, yes and... yeah, I, mean, I feel like yes and no. Like, I, I love Twin Peaks of the Return. It's my favourite series of the decade in many ways. But this had... It's quite austere, I think, compared to Mulholland Drive. Like, I felt Mulholland Drive, the pilot, yeah. was more continuous with the original Twin Peaks mm. series than, mm. the, than Twin Peaks The Return is. And you remember that we saw Mulholland Drive at the cinemas, like, within weeks of having watched all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. So the, the continuity... It was a great, great confluence it was of a events, great, wasn't it? Um, I mean, something else that was just so powerful about watching this was, was seeing Mulholland Drive reshaped to fit televisual language so there's yeah. lots of fade out scenes yeah that i was like oh those fade outs remind me so much of twin peaks I'm like, of course they're ad breaks yeah you know and in so, fact i don't know about you but my youtube was interrupted by ads at yes, certain points yes exactly <laughs> so you know just seeing it in a kind of just seeing the traces of television and you know the the, the version on youtube is it's you can watch it clearly but it's not a particularly good version there's yeah. scenes where the oh, image it's, glitches it's it's a pretty bad version yeah i uh, probably wouldn't recommend it uh, it's really a basic question is does this exist in some high quality version and i want because i wondered is, is can you watch it as a, as a special on like a dvd box set yeah i mean this perhaps. kind of stuff has gone 
we've lost that kind of marginalia we have with, yeah. the, with the, the you know yeah. the end of the dvd kind I have of to say as well did you find the ending of this this the ending incredible. of this was incredible incredible yeah uh, uh, i thought this actually this was a much better way of integrating that mm. that shadowy kind of yeah. homeless figure well, or look i don't know I, yes so it's worth saying that the scene where the two guys in the diner the, the dream where, where the guy in the diner repeats the dream sequence that then comes alive with the figure at the back of the diner. I mean, I love that scene. It's not in this version. No. But I think you must come... Well, it's anything. Would it have come around to that? Or Apparently that, that, that was that in the shot? original 125-minute okay. version, okay. but it was later excised. But I think the way that it's it's integrated and, yes. and used as a final shot here of the pilot is incredibly eerie. I it's, mean, I was really... It's incredible. creeped me out. It's incredibly scary because, yeah. I mean, it, it's... I agree. And actually... Interestingly, I I did I don't normally do this with with pilot club, but I went to the end of the pilot just to see if there was a credit sequence. I was curious mm. about the way in which mm. the pilot was framed. So the first image I saw was that last image. I was oh, like, wow. how on earth can it get to somewhere so terrifying as that yeah. last image? And exactly, and I mean, it, it reminded me. Can remember the first ever Lynch text we saw was the ninety minute version of Twin Peaks, the Twin yes. Peaks pilot, which was in you know, fashioned into a 90-minute film for VHS release. Yeah. And, and in some countries released on television as that 90-minute pilot. And that ends with... It, it's a complicated production history, but in the most original runs of the series, you don't get to the Black Lodge, the supernatural space in Twin Peaks to like episode three or four. Mm. But in the pilot, you get a glimpse of it at the very end. Mm. And it's so unsettling and so incongruous mm. and so intriguing. So a similar thing happens here. So you have, you know, a kind of heightened normality from, you know... 89 of the 90 minutes of the pilot but in that last minute you get this really eerie glimpse of mm. a completely different supernatural scheme mm. operating in Los Angeles yeah. and then it just ends and it just yeah. fades so it, it is a beautiful like beautifully deft yeah. way to just bring in that extra element of horror yeah. right at the end it has that kind of mobile camera yes kind of prefigures some of these That's, some of these really great uh, noughties horror texts as well absolutely and something like, you know that was kind of fascinating watch back to it like it feels in the same way that Twin Peaks felt embedded in late 80s television this mm. is the same for late 90s like all you know mm. on the one hand it's very grungy at times mm. but on the other hand there's all these dark wood panelled you know baroque looking interiors and the camera is very mobile yeah. like it's much more mobile than in than in Twin Peaks yeah but the the style and the the voice is is mm. continuous like I feel like I'm I go on and on about this. I yeah. just, you know, I would have been a hardy is perhaps the way to <laughs> put it. Absolutely, yeah. And I just... It's I, just mystifying. I mean, had this occurred... This was just a series that was ahead of its time. Had this been released 10 years later mm. or even 20 years later, it would have been absolutely greenlit and David Lynch would have had carte blanche to but do also, what he wants. But also, you know, it's weird because Twin Peaks had been so successful in some ways. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I think it'd been there'd been a couple of series that, you know, had been commissioned by commercial networks that Lynch had been had his hands in mm. that uh, were not successful. Yep. I, I wasn't really aware until just reading, yeah, yeah. doing a bit of research here that he actually had a bit of a, a track record of failure, yeah, yeah. which I think might have spooked the investors network. in particular. Given this was this was a seven million dollar investment, it was effectively dumped, and it wasn't until the the people at uh, Canal Plus oh. uh, recovered I and mean, rehabilitated this that that would have just been absolutely you know dead investment a, a write-off but also you know conversely isn't it amazing to think you know, there's so many what-ifs around this what if the canal police people had never contacted lynch and mm. the only version in existence was this pilot yeah so we should at least be grateful I that's think, right. to have the movie but that's true and it is it is you know a fantastic movie but just and it does, does provide a nice little yes. bit of narrative closure yes. to what is a very diffuse pilot but it's funny isn't it like the supernatural space in 
the film The Lorando Crying Space is quite close to Twin Peaks in its imagery. Yeah. Whereas I wonder here whether the supernatural space we glimpse at the end here would have been quite different, would have been more mm. original. Like, mm. you know, it, it, it fulfills the same position structurally that the Black Lodge does at the end of the Twin Peaks pilot, but mm. it's very different visually, the imagery yeah. that we get. So yeah. In some ways it's creepy. It's very creepy. <laughs> so look, this was bittersweet agonizing beautiful fascinating it was a series i wanted to see as soon as i'd seen the film i found myself thinking is there at least a second episode out <laughs> yeah, there is there, right. is there anything else to continue like right. i was hanging on every scene yeah um yeah so look i would have been a hardy at the time but i'm, I'm so glad to have watched mm. it and i just i love so much about it yeah this, this is the girl <laughs> you, if you see me if you, if you do good you'll see me one more time if you do bad you, um, that scene with the cowboy i mean it's great in the film but it, no, ram- it ramifies in a different scene. way here. So yeah. look, I loved it. I'm a, I'm a, I would have been a hard in. So for this week's pilot club archive choice, do you have a series that actually existed? <laughs> do you have a series that was actually watched? Well, I mean, yeah, that's frustrating to say I'm a hard in, and then having nothing else to watch exactly. is, is obviously a bit frustrating. So I've departed from that to a certain extent. So we're going to look at a different genre, mm. much shorter mm. comedy, mm. sketch comedy which we haven't really looked at so much Fascinating. so far. I've, I've been wondering, when are we going to get to our first sketch show? Great. That's right. And I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this series or you've watched it. Mm. Uh, we're going to watch Mr. Show. Fantastic choice. So I, ha- I, have, I, I, I have seen it and I oh, love okay. it. And I've got two, point, two things. Point to I love Bob Odenkirk and I love Karen Kilgariff okay. from My Favourite Murder. So that's fantastic idea okay I'm, i've never seen it myself i know it's just been recently released mm. on i watched it years ago on, though so I, i'm on, keen yeah, to rewatch it on the binge streaming service and it's considered you know a classic in mm. in this particular genre this is a genre that's obviously you know in some ways on its death throes but mm. this is this is you know your classic early to mid 90s mm. sketch comedy show and obviously bob odenkirk's profiles increased so much fantastic. so it'd be interesting to go back and see bob odenkirk comedian great awesome that's a fantastic choice and it's an interesting question because I guess if, if with with sketch shows, because there's a new show, oh, I forget what it's called, isn't it? Second season, a new with sketch shows. Is each season a different show, or do we mm. do the pilot of the? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so variable. Yeah, I have no real sense of this, but I'm looking forward to yeah. to delving into the, the golden age of sketch comedy, the '90s. Great, great choice. So next week we'll be doing uh, Mr. Show. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>